Well, welcome to part two of the Real Life, Real Stories, Real People podcast. Yes, we've got the man back himself, Mr. Pat Drummond, award-winning artist, Australian pub legend, songwriter, and general alarican around the music industry. Welcome back, Pat. It's great to see you again, Rob. Mate, it's, uh, it's been a little while since we chatted and a lot of people came back after the last chat and said, you know what, we want to know a little bit more about how Pat actually got on stage and what he can tell us about what he got up to and where he's going from here. Mate, you used to play with your, uh, your brothers in a very strange named band, I heard. Yeah, in Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom Band, as I mentioned in uh, part one of our interview, um, that uh, basically happened because my brother Ron took us into the folk scene and got us involved in that amazing way that he did. Yeah. And uh, was the folk scene what you really wanted to be in or were you going more towards comedy and rock? Well, I was days? basically following my big brother and yeah. uh, he led us into that scene and there was a real, as I mentioned about the first song that I wrote, The Way of the Cross, in yeah. the last uh, chat, that there was a real emphasis on social documentary, social justice, and music uh, being something that could actually change the world. Yeah. And I believe that it actually does. You know, when you look like a song, uh, at a song like Amazing Grace, that uh, really went on to change the world because it was written by a slaver who, who uh, uh, was bringing a, a bunch of slaves back to England and, uh, and suddenly they got caught in a, uh, a terrible storm. Mm. And all the slaves and the children downstairs began to cry and wail and he thought he was going to die. And he made a promise to God that if he was saved, he'd stop doing it. And the, suddenly the waves calmed down and all that kind of stuff. So mm. it, why did that become a song that changed the world in some ways? You know, that first verse says, Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's where it talks about that. So he went on to actually become a, a Christian minister and a big leader of the anti-slave movement. So that was, I suppose, the context of many, many songs, that they are actually stories that perhaps accidentally, but often intentionally by the writer, are songs that they put in place to create some real social change. Well, that's something you did go to, especially early and then you had your, your, your big residencies and when you're at your, your massive popularity and then we'll discuss after that where you really hit into those you become one of Australia's premium uh, storytelling songwriters and singers how long did you look at it before you decided I'm going to go single I'm going to go and perform by myself or was it by chance that you ended up on stage sort of by mistake, which is sort of not the right word, but how quite often people get their start. Yeah, well, that's exactly it, Rob. That, um, remember I said in the last time that we chatted that, that I, you don't really know where you're going. And the mm. trick is to be actually open to where you're being led. Yes. Uh, I, I mentioned that my career started quite unexpectedly at Journey's End on September the 26th, 44 years ago this yes. month in 1976. And, um, what actually happened, which I didn't tell you, was that I was teaching at the time. I'd gone into teaching after I'd married and uh, I thought I was going into prison uh, because, as I mentioned yeah. previously, I was involved with the anti-conscription movement and that. Yeah. And I, I actually had been sentenced to go to prison, but it was just prior to Gough Whitlam's election. 
And so they suspended the sentence and then Gough swept to power and he quashed all the convictions of the draft resistors yes. who refused to register to go to Vietnam. And uh, as a result of that, I didn't go to prison. I got a teacher scholarship instead. I should mention that the bloke who actually sentenced me to prison was a bloke by the name of Murray Farquhar. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I've been in prison for three years. <laughs> Again, oh, it only happened in the Pat Drummond movie. Anyhow, I got a teaching degree and I started teaching. Hmm. And I went into the city to buy a guitar. Yeah. And I got a call from my ex-draft resistor mate, um, uh, Robert Wood, who went on to be Senator Robert Wood for the uh, Nuclear Disarmament Party many years later. Yeah. Hey, Pat, um, where are you? And I said, I'm actually in the city, mate. And he said, oh, mate, you're only a few kilometres away. He said, you've got to come and see this bloke. He's playing down at a place called Journey's End. Yep. In and I said, all right. I said, but I've just been in the city. I bought a new guitar. And he said, okay, you just come. So I came in and I, I found a parking spot, which you couldn't do these days. And, but I didn't want to leave my guitar in the car because I just bought it. Mm. So I picked it up and carried it into the, the place. Well, the bloke who was supposed to come and play, which as I remember it, was Paul Kelly. No one had heard of him at that stage. He hadn't had any big hits. Yeah. Um, uh, and we waited for him to arrive and somehow he got lost. Um, and after about half an hour, the place was packed, a lot of people waiting there. Yeah. And my mate came up and said, guess what? And I said, what? He said, you're on. I said, what? He said, you've got a guitar, haven't you? And I said, yeah. So I just talked to the management, the guy can't get here. And, um, and so I, I, I got you the job tonight. And guess what? I got you $25. I'd never heard of $25 all in the one place in 1976. <laughs> so I grabbed my guitar, got up and played, and I had no idea that I was going to get the response that I got. And I suppose, as is the way my career has always gone, I just read the crowd and started to play them the things that I, I'd written that connected to them and got them involved. And before I knew it, by the end of the night, the bloke had come up and asked me to just play there every Sunday night. I went on to play there for seven years of a Sunday night. And by the end of that year, I was playing six nights a week and trying to, as is recorded in the song, another weekend, yeah. trying to be a teacher at the same time and raise a family. So by the end of that year, I took three years leave of absence, which you were able to do in those yeah. days, to find out what would happen if I went full time. And I never went back teaching uh, for, for something like 44 years, you know? Well, 43 years, I actually went back and did some teaching in very recent times out of yeah. Academy. So the first time you got up, did you play covers? Did you play your own stuff or what did you do? Well, I played a, a, a few of my own songs and I played the songs that my brothers and I had, had, had written for yeah. the moratorium rallies. But I also mixed that in with things that I thought they would like to hear. And the other thing I was very touched about, the fact that, as I mentioned to you last episode, that I'd originally grown up around the Newtown area, the inner city area. So Chippendale and that whole area, you know, was... was you know, pretty close to my heart. And I started reminiscing and telling stories about the things that had happened to me as a kid, as well as singing the songs from those days that I remembered. So there was a kind of a nostalgia part of it too. Yeah, I suppose if anyone looks back at your back catalogue, 
What You See Is What You Get, School Days, and all of those albums are about, if anyone takes a looks at the words, they're about any kid growing up in Sydney at the time. And we're all bullied. We're all, you know, treated, most of us, pretty uh, bad, uh, especially if we didn't fit in. We weren't the status quo. You know, we were a little bit different, strange. You know, that's what happened. They had Dr. Redbirds. You had a whole heap. You're starting in a big following. One of the biggest questions people came back to me was, how did you get to play at the rest? At the rest hotel. How did you get, first, not the residency, but how did you first get into that place to play? Well, it's bizarre. It could only happen in the Pat Drummond movie. <laughs> when I was going to teacher's college, I got dragged into a band. And... Uh, Two, two people that uh, got involved, hmm. Tony and Nigel, uh, came from the North Shore. And I didn't know, but Nigel's dad also was involved in pubs and things like that. So I, uh, I found myself dragged into the rest hotel to play for uh, a friend, you know, family, you know. Yeah. And um, because I, by that stage, I was already getting big crowds, hmm. but the Rest Hotel connected me to a whole different group of people. I, I can only put it this way. At the time, like I say, I'd been quite successful in other venues at the time. The Australian music scene had developed a very um, strong group of rock bands and things like that, where we'd grown up all listening to American bands and things like that. There was only a few people like Johnny O'Keefe when yeah. I was growing up that were Australian. But suddenly, around about this stage, the, uh, the, 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 the pub scene started to develop a real following for people like Paul Kelly and In Excess and all yeah. those guys, you know. And uh, so uh, people wanted to have that group. But all the people who went to see those guys and ACDC and that, with the real cool guys, you know, the, you know, yeah. the, you know, the socially confident people and things like that. Something started to happen at the Rest Hotel because I didn't have a band, so I almost developed this folk punk sound where I, the crowd became my band. Yes. I just started getting singing along, and then formally we actually did brackets, which we called the Pat Drummond Remedial School of Background Singing, where I teach them parts and I do my part, they do their part, whatever. And the people that it began to draw were the people who were not considered the ultra cool, ultra, you know, oh, oh, oh I know what I'm doing. It wasn't the bullies, it was the, it was the other group, the kind of kids that felt like they didn't quite belong. And yeah, that's true. Yes. I, that's so true. It's uh, anyone, I speak to people, you, know, you run into people and they come to my place and they see one of your old posters up on the back that I acquired from somewhere. And uh, they said, did you go to the rest? And I went, yeah. Oh, I went there too. And then they opened their heart. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions because if I don't about the rest, because the rest sets up the rest of your career, really, pardon the pun. Uh, you're already popular. You got to the rest. What was it that when people came into that place, and this is, this is from other people saying to me, is they felt safe, they felt wanted, they felt part of a family. And many, many of those people, especially your road crew, are still friends 40 years later, 30 years later, 
will still turn up in a pub if you're playing, like you did down at Jamboree not that long ago, where you had the place packed of half rest hotelers and half post rest hotelers, which was quite scary for people who didn't know. But it's as though this bond that is totally unbreakable. What do you, could you put your finger on what it was? Because it wasn't just you, it wasn't just the crowd, it wasn't just the pub, it was as though someone put in a big melting pot, and we'll get to music in a second, that they became so protective of each other. I mean, if you walked up to the bar there, you weren't a local, as in they called them a regular, even though people came from all over Sydney, you waited until a regular got served. If the bar, if Big Jimmy on the front door didn't know you and you arrived late, which was quarter to eight, you didn't get in. But he would turn his back and let everyone in that he knew. What was it about that place? I mean... Well, like I say, I think it was where the people... Um, who were considered by the cool, cool fraternity hmm. to be the nerdy ones or the vulnerable ones or whatever. Or they didn't fit for one reason. And they found this place where they did fit with each other. That was hmm. part one. Part two, it was a welcoming and safe place where it wasn't about who's the coolest guy because he's aggressive. And what they started to do was started to be developed through this group action of all singing together and learning parts and learning actions and things like that, they developed this kind of family feeling. And I love what you said about protective thing. They were very protective of each other. Yes. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you one story, Rob, which I think is really sums it all up. We were there one night and people would just come in and they'd come in after work or whatever it is and they'd just put their bags down. If they needed to drink, they couldn't get to the bar. They'd hand their money to the person next to them and it'd go across the top of the crowd and the drinks would come back across the top of the crowd with the crowd, with, the, with their, money, their change. The, the, the publicans at the time couldn't believe it. But one night, it was just before Christmas, we were doing a show there. My brother Ron had joined me by that stage. He was my road crew and, and doing all my background harmonies on stage and all that kind of stuff. And um, this girl came in for the first or second time and she had a person, she put it down on the, the ground beside her foot and um, it had her entire Christmas wages in it. And I believe it was somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the vicinity of about $1,200. She came to the stage destroyed at the end of the first bracket because someone had stolen. We'd never heard of anything like this at the Rest Hotel. So my brother Ron decided that it wasn't my business. He was the road crew. He was going to take over, as he often did. God bless him. And he walked up to the microphone and said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We've lost a, a, a bag. Everyone spread out and find it. And they spread out and they found it in the men's loo. And it was completely empty. All the money had gone. Mm. And he came back to the stage and he said, what are we going? I said, what are we going to do? He said, I know what we're going to do. And he got all these buckets. And he said, I'm sending a bucket around the crowd. Just put something in for the, the girl. We're going to get her Christmas wages back. By the time he got back, they ended up with something like $3,000 that had been collected. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. <laughs> she only lost about $1,200. I said, I'm giving $600 to the St. Vincent de Paul, but what the heck am I going to do with all the other, other spare money? And they all turned to the stage and they yelled out, give it to her, happy Christmas. And 
it was typical. She went home with something like two and you know two and a half thousand dollars instead of twelve hundred dollars because, as far as I was concerned, the grief that she'd gone through was unacceptable in yeah. the family they'd become. Yeah. Now I asked Adam Thompson from Staff well, Chocolate Starfish's question, and I'm going to ask you for a very very honest answer. What was it like when you're playing a fairly big gig, and the first time the crowd? sung your song back to you not a cover one of your songs yes what was that like i well i think uh, that because it happened in the pub all the time hmm. and started out just a little crowd and then got bigger and bigger and bigger i was kind of immune to thinking it was something new until i got dragged uh, into uh doing a support show for people like Red Gum and who were massive at the time and, and, and people like In Excess. Hmm. Being with In Excess at, 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 at Uni of New South Wales and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And suddenly the, 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 the management of the other band started to get real worried about having me as a support band because they put me on to do the support and suddenly the crowd would take off and sing all these songs. They'd embedded themselves in the crowd, got there really early, were right down the front. They were singing my songs in this huge way, like I was the headline act. So I suppose that's when it really hit me when we were talking about crowds of five and 6,000 and in the domain once, hmm. 50,000 people. I suddenly realised this had grown beyond anything that I was capable of controlling or, or even understanding. I just had no idea it had become this huge, I don't know. I, I remember helping a mate out who was roading for another band one night and he needed a couple of luggers, so we went down to help him. I don't remember it. I think it was the Ox of Bondi or something like that, one of your old venues. And they, they, we started talking to him and, you know, he came up and they said, in Total Amusement, this band had hits on the top 40, and they were playing to 100, 200 people. And they just looked at us and said, how does that guy get more people to a gig than we can? And one of the guys just turned around and said to them, mate, he listens to the crowd. I, I think you've said probably it. But it was, I wasn't the band. The whole of us was the band. Yeah. Everyone. And when I, I realised that and started writing along those lines with songs like Who Owns the Ball, writing songs that deliberately had crowd parts integrated into them, that, yeah. that, uh, that's where, where I think it was the beginning of social networking, you know, right, right back before the web. Although yeah. I must say, my brother Ron, who was always such a groundbreaker, he was the one that had me on the web before it was even browser-based. It was BBS boards. It looked like when you log into a network now and you see somebody else's disc. Um, the rest hotel, it was people talking from me out to one another. It was like pyramid selling in a sort of way, except it was this pyramid social movement where people were going out and recruiting other people in huge numbers, dragging them onto the show. But they, because they understood the type yes. of thing it was, they were often inviting the, the vulnerable people, the, the people yeah. that you know, weren't considered the cool people. Now, before we move on for the rest, there's a couple of questions that people have uh, sent to me and asked me to ask you. The recording of the Live Rest Hotel where you ran the wires down the road to a recording studio, 
people started, there was over two nights. A lot of people didn't know the second night was happening. Most people turn up for the first night. Uh, now on the first night, people started arriving at the pub at 10 o'clock and they were there. And by six o'clock, Triple M in Sydney, which was the number one station, was pleading with people, do not turn up. The road is already blocked. The police are really getting worried. There was 600 people in a 300 people pub, a thousand people at least on the outside. When you turned up and you started to see what had happened, what did you think? Well, in a funny sort of way, by that stage, I didn't think it was, as I said to you, it wasn't for me. There was this team of people, like guys that had just, like yourself, had come up out of the road, out of the crowd and decided they were going to be the road crew, you know, and, and there was something like 16 men road crew actually <laughs> working under Ron's, uh, under Ron's guidance. Yes. But um, it became this kind of community thing. So I only turned up after all the PA was all set up mm. and everything like that. And I, had, I got the shock of my life when I saw the, the crowd that was there. It was also only had come to pass through because down, I was talking to Roger Corbett. I'd been dragged in back to my folk groups a little bit, yeah. uh, which was the beginning of the next section of my career. Yeah. Roger Corbett into being the fill-in for Tommy Emmanuel in, uh, in the Bushwhackers for a short tour. And he pointed out to me that it was time that I, I did a, uh, an album and he, apparently some members of a band called Status Quo had moved out to Australia and formed a band out here. Um, and they owned, their manager owned a recording studio barely a hundred yards down the road. So we went and saw him and he was very well aware of what was happening at the pub to see if he'd record it. And he said, oh, what we'll do is just run a couple of mics up there and we'll put it straight into the studio down here. And yards away, we'll run it over the power lines or whatever. When, by the time the crowd started to swell the way it did, he placed microphones out all uh, hanging off the, uh, off the telegraph wires, yes. all of the streets around it. So when I came down to hear the, 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 the end of the first bracket that we played and it put it on, it sounded like Wembley Stadium. And I said, <laughs> I said, wait a minute, no one's going to believe that was live at the Rest Hotel. It sounds like, it sounds like Wembley Stadium. He said, don't believe it. I said, why? He said, you, it's as you told me, you're not the one singing. Wait till they start to sing. And when they started to sing on the album, there was this gigantic crowd and uh, in it. So, you know, that, how did I feel? I felt like I was, and all, I don't want to say insignificant, but I felt I was a small part of a huge team and a huge community of people who were achieving what they did. They went on to mix it all. I didn't do any of that, you know. And just at the end of the night, you know, got rescued by Carol and taken away, you know, and, uh, and they cleaned it up the pub and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So in a funny way, um, I wasn't doing it. I wasn't running it. It was a community of people. There was one night people still talk about where you had a cold and you came on with a croaky voice and you basically said, I've got no voice. I play, you sing. And the crowd just went, well, we can't really say on this podcast what they said, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, you play with a broken arm, you played everything. Last question, and this may be a tough one for you. We all 
got caught up in the Alan Bond thing and uh, the pubs were taken over and there was a long battle and, you know, eventually we won. But that also signalled uh, when Joan and Jeff had to vacate the pub, you made the call to vacate as well. Now, in hindsight, do you think that was probably the right time to leave? Well, again, I'm always open to the signals that come to me. Like I mm. say, it's a spiritual perspective, as I said to you in the last uh, interview. I had already been dragged by Red Gum out on tour mm. with I had already been dragged into the bushwhackers for a little while. Mm. And in a funny way, it was like a completing circle. I was coming back to my folk roots um, again, um, even though it was now, you know, folk rock. Mm. And so I decided, yes, I'd, I'd do that. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the hotel had come down anyway. And I invented, invented this new character. I don't know, just out of... The, off the top of my head on the basis of one of the songs that I'd written on the way to the Resto Hotel one night called The Battler, where I picked up a hitchhiker and he told me this incredible story. In a funny way, that became the first one of the true story songs that went on to be the vanguard of the reported character. Once I realised what I was doing, I, I, you know, put it into a visual form by becoming a, a reporter on stage. By that stage, I'd been picked up by John Williamson's managers at the time, Tim Kirkland and Marie Morris. And um, they sent me out to a little place right up in the bush past Maree, uh, and to Ballara. And uh, I played a, a, a set of shows up there and that changed everything because I was living with a, a country family while I was there, the O'Connells. Mm. I wanted to write um, uh, Laugh Like Shield about Yes. And I experienced what it was like to live completely outside my comfort zone again, like that night in King's Cross when I met that young girl. Um, but because I was completely, I had to understand other people's stories to even make sense of what I was going through. So I started writing it because I just, that's as I said in the last interview, how I make sense of things. Suddenly there was one song after another and what happened there was so successful that country organisations, particularly Rotary groups, started to contact me from all over Australia to come and do shows for them. And I did it quite cheaply on the basis that they'd raise money for their local community, but yeah. also on the condition that they would billet me out with a local family yeah. so that I can learn their stories and hear their stories. And so that's what happened. And I developed friends in communities right across the course of the country in over 30 years of doing that, where um, their stories became the captured on my, my albums. So it was the people I stayed with, but it was also the people that I picked up hitchhiking along the way, including the lady of the night that I picked up because yeah. I thought a hitchhiker that went on to be the story behind the road to Damascus, which a lot of people consider to be one of my, my finest songs. So that, I guess, really was how I began to grow into the character that I, was, I had created. Now, a lot of people, I've been speaking to a few of the road crew, so you don't have to get too nervous. Uh, they, based on them, all agreed that uh, when you left the rest, like there was that struggle of people who wanted just the rest hotels and then there was the people, and you were trying to establish your new music 
which to them was new music, but going back to your roots. And there were, and everyone on the road crew, they, the crowd just saw this guy that got up and played. They didn't see the pat behind the black, as we called it, the perfectionist, the guy who you had to have his uh, microphone at the right side. You had to have the lights right. And that's not, that wasn't being mean because it was all about putting on a great show. And the work you did behind the scenes, the guitar, the everything to make sure that the crowd got a great show. And, and that was very important as you, after you left the rest to reconnect and get and, and one of the biggest ones that they were told was, don't interrupt Pat when he's speaking to someone in the crowd unless it is important. And there was, a, and people don't realise there was a reason behind that. And a lot of people said, well, this is because, now you can contradict me if you're wrong, that he said that they're his customers, they're his people, and it was so important for him to spend time with the people who have come to see him. And he got a lot of his stories from talking to those people, and they were so important to him. Would that be a fair summary of what they've said? I think it is. Uh, basically, that, that the crowd were not, even at the Rest Hotel, just a crowd. They were part of my family, if you yes. understand what I'm saying. And then when I travelled out on the road as a reporter, that became even more um, true. In fact, I'm in a funny stage now. We talked about the, the lockdown. Yes. As I come down to the end of my career, and it'd be 44 years exactly as I said, on the 26th of September, 2020, um, uh, that as I come down to the end of it, a lot of people sort of look forward, say they look forward to retiring because, hey, Pat, you can go home and spend all your time with your friends. But my <laughs> friends are scattered right across, and some of my dearest and closest friends are scattered right across the country, um, probably in my local area, just Dawn and Nigel Foote, and Karen, that I travelled with when I formed that duo with Karen Lee and her family. They're the ones that live in the mountains. But apart from that and my church group, all my dearest, closest friends, many of the times the people that I'd written songs about, yeah. all over this country. So in a funny way, the lockdown and the re-establishment of people connecting through Zoom meetings, yes. like all the road crew do now once a month, and uh, which we hadn't been doing before the, the no. pandemic. Um, can actually lead you to be more connected with people. I think those those new social norms might actually be a good thing. There could be some really positive that, come, that comes out of this that I could spend a lot more time talking yeah. to my dear friends all over this country than I actually did prior to the lockdown. Yeah, now, we're going to totally... This is all now post-rest because your, your career is so much more than just one place. Are there any venues that stick in your mind that when you when they're touring over the last 20 years 30 years that are, are very fond to you that you've gone back to many times and you feel at home going to play there and you feel at home with the people that are turning up yes i definitely say that i would say that that's the case um in in armadale yes at the, at the uh, rsl club there i'd say it's the the case in uh, Tamworth at the Long Yard Hotel. Yeah. You've got to remember that that's where Tim and Marie, who I told you became my initial managers, first sent me to Tamworth, you know, yep. that was 34 years ago. And again, what end of times it is to find <laughs> that the Tamworth Festival's been completely cancelled for the first time. Very sad. And um, uh, so playing at the Long Yard, it's also where I received 
some of my greatest awards, and then sometimes I wasn't even expecting them, to be awarded the Lifetime Achievement uh, Award from Tamworth Songwriters uh, 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 Association yep. was massive. The Songmaker Award was a massive thing for me, to be inducted into the hands of fame. I'm not sure after my early years as a, an anti-conscription person and, you know, a bit of a lefty of that, I'm, I'm sure the hands of fame, it was probably, I was probably awarded that by ASIO because they wanted to finally get my fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that, that, of course, as well, the rest hotel, definitely. Yeah. And, even until recent times, I could go back there because even when they, they demolished it and built the new building, it was the corner bar was a place you could still stay. Yeah. But at the end of times this last year, that corner section has been turned into a supermarket. Yes. So, it's, uh, but that's certainly one of them. Um, Journey's End yes. started for me, which... I, again, this must be something about the Pat Drummond story. Where I began, Journey's End was a uh, is now a pole dancing clubs for stripper. <laughs> as that the same building, whereas the last recording that I, I did uh, uh, was one of the venues was the Harp Hotel out at Tempe, and uh, that is now. A, a, a venue of accommodation for ladies of the nights and their <laughs> so but those places certainly and the Clarendon in Katoomba yes. where I recorded the Through the Crack live album so I guess that last of all there's a song called Brothers on the Road which focuses around one hotel called the White Hart Hotel in Murrundi yes where my brother Ron and I accidentally ended up playing one night and it it was a place we played in our, my very early career in, before I became a country music star right down to you know coming down to the, the end before it, anyhow yeah. recent years what was it on the road that yeah. focuses around that part. yeah what was it like to have the privilege to be able to actually tour with your brother because most get to play, but to actually spend time and tour with a sibling must have been very special. Well, in many ways, we, were, we could relive the past a little. But the funny thing is that because my star had risen the way it had, um, I, Ron was always telling me what to do when we were kids in the first band and that. But I could actually say what I thought we should do, you know, which was really good. You know? <laughs> but... There were moments we would just start talking together and that talk, you know, would arise into a song. And, and uh, so there was this tremendous interaction. And, uh, it, and because he was organising my travels as the leader of the road crew, in a way, he was still, still in charge, you know. In a way, it, that was great and special. But I still work with my other brothers as well, which, of course, has written so many of the songs that, that have turned up on my albums, even though he lives in South Australia. Mm. And Danny and, and, and Steve and I and Jeff, even after losing Ron when he passed away in 2003, we still get together and play. And we're even working on a recording where we're actually going to record all the songs we originally sang wow. when Ron was with us right back in the early days. It's not for public release necessarily, no. but you never know. Oh, well, I'll tell you, one of the roadies did say to me that 
we we let Ron think he was in charge. <laughs> well, quite often he'd turn up late and then pretend he'd been there the whole gig and you'd turn up and you'd go to him, everything ready to go, yeah? <laughs> nothing. So I've got to say that there was no road, one road crew who regularly ran the road crew. Why? What, well, for the same reason that I had a 16-man road crew. Why? It was Carol's instruction. She was the one that was running everything. She knew that in the early years there, with those huge crowds, people were sending drinks for me to drink on stage. So mm -hmm. I decided that I would drink tequila and orange. Why? Because the crowd would send the tequila and oranges to the stage. The road crew would take them, walk around the black at the back of the stage. I was allowed to drink the first two on Carol's instructions, but they had to put all the rest down and substitute them with orange juice, which looked exactly the same. Hmm. And I drank orange juice for the rest of the night. However, the crowd couldn't find out the drinks weren't drunk. So a certain number of the road crew, up to eight, <laughs> would have to drink all the other drinks that were sent to the stage. And at the end of the night, the remaining road crew, four or eight or six or whoever, had the job of carrying out all the gear after I'd left and then carrying out all the road crew members after I'd left and putting them in, a, in the van and getting them all home. And on our road crew reminiscence site that we set up during Zoom, some of the stories that came out that I never even knew about what went on there was really show that no one road crew member was running it. They were on a roster where every now and then, yes, they had to take over, be the one that didn't drink, make sure everyone got home safe and all that kind of stuff. And mm. this was before they even had breathalysis. Well, some of the road crew I spoke to said, of course, that didn't happen. Believe me, I was part of the road crew. <laughs> and I mean, people have got to understand that this road crew was security, this road crew sold you records, this road crew kept you on time, and this road crew didn't matter if they were paid or not, they turned up to the gig and they all ended up working, yeah. and they all protected everyone that was there. There is a famous story of, at, uh, I think it was a New South Wales uh, uni, you playing a gig, you played a double gig, you played Woolmaloo Bay Hotel in the afternoon, and that night, it was all hands on deck and the road crew and the local rugby club joined arms across the front of the stage to hold the crowd back that had gone... They'd been drinking for hours before you came on stage and for the next three hours held the crowd back as they heaved forward and back, cursing you the whole time. And uh, it was... Well, they reckon it was one of the most amazing experiences that uh, they've ever seen or got covered in. Yeah, look, there was all sorts of things that the road crew had to, had to do over time, that's for sure. You know, um, I did get in trouble at, at the uni uh, that night because eventually I had everyone dancing so hard they broke the plumbing underneath the floor of the toilet and leaked all through the offices downstairs. What a shame. Not my fault. They shouldn't allow that many people into that area. Oh. Do you, uh, on, your, on the songs that you've written of your own, are there any that are... Um close to your heart or like a favourite? I mean, I know it's very hard for a songwriter to say, this is my favourite, this is what I like singing. But well, there must be a couple that sort of tickle when you get to play them. There's around about 40, I have 45 that I've made a list of that are my absolute favourites. And yeah. 
they include things like The Way of the Cross, that, yes. that, that first song I wrote, and the Chippendale song that I wrote when I was living in the commune in Chippendale, also songs like Another Weekend. It's also the songs from, that we've discussed from the School Days album. Yep. The Local Rag, If a Man is a Man, uh, yeah. was one of the typical uh, songs from Dubbo, and The Toilet Paper Line Dan, Laughed Like a Shield, the Sayo song was such a big song. Yeah. But in terms of the question you've asked, truly ones that resonated personally with me, The Colours of the Cross, the poem that I wrote when I woke up on top of the van underneath the stars, yeah. you know, in the ranges, uh, that west of Coonabarabran, that is very special to me. The Gamblers on the Land, which is the story really of my father, that I told you in the first um, bracket. Who is that refugee that I wrote after I was visiting the refugee centres. And it just came to me that the first refugees family of modern history was Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Yes. The ones that I recorded with Karen, wrote and recorded with Karen, the song of the quilt and, uh, and the rush that won us the country music song of the year. Um, the one that I wrote that Arlo Guthrie took back to America when I was touring with him, because he'd been one of my childhood heroes having written Alice's Restaurant and uh, me being in the draft resistor at the time. Um, Amish Morn, uh, the story of the incredible Christian response of a family towards the family of a man who murdered their children, which was just incredible. The, the I suppose also, I'd have to mention The Road to Damascus because I don't know if people have heard the, the story behind it, but. I, I was the travelling storyteller and I picked up a lady who I thought was a, 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 a hitchhiker, turned out to be a lady of the night. And when she realised I wasn't going to buy her services, she told me the most amazingly heartbreaking story in an effort to get me to give her $70. Yeah. And when I realised what she was doing, we talked it out. I gave her the $70 anyway, but I realised that she was a professional storyteller who had developed this story to get payment when she, the person whose car she got into didn't want her other services. Hmm. And it made me realise that it, I'd started out like that lady I mentioned in the very first song I wrote thinking I was above the person who had propositioned me, yeah. only to realise that she and I were doing exactly the same thing. I was a travelling so storyteller too, dependent on other people listening to my stories, believing me and giving me some sort of revenue through the shows that I did. And the other one that is very important to me is a song called Somebody Else's Slides. Ah, oh, yes. Because it... It was just such an incredible event and it also made me reflect on what I was doing. That song, of course, I went into the ABC on, uh, in Kempsey to do an interview with Nick Weir and he was a little bit behind and he told me that uh, uh, he, he asked me to go and kill 15 minutes. So I walked outside and into the second-hand store looking for old bits of computers because I collect old Macintoshes and I found a a whole box full of slides that had been thrown out. And I wondered who they were. And I thought, oh, this might be something fun to do. 
I'll buy them and took them back on air. And I started going through them. And it was kind of heart-wrenching to realise this person's life had ended up in a second-hand store. Mm. And I started going through them. And as we did, Nick was pulling them out and I was pulling them out. And he pulled out one where I was in the slide with the lady at the Riverlands Festival. And I even knew what year it was because it was the only year that I played there in 1993. And it made me suddenly realise that the stories I'd been gathering were like these slides she had gathered. Mm. Times in someone's life with her that she'd shared. So that one is pretty important to me too. There's there's a list of, like I say, 45 of my favourite songs. They've all got reasons why they're they're important to me. And um, I, I, I suppose that I've shared them over the years. I had someone email me the other day and ask me, can you ask him where these two songs came from? Yeah. One was Molly and Me. Yes. And one was the Wilbarrow song. The Wilbarrow song. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and they, they were saying, where did those songs come from? I mean, I think she meant the trolley song, not the trolley movie. song. That was, could have been what it was. Yeah. Uh, and I was just repeating verbatim what she sent through to me. Okay. Well, Molly and Me is a true story. But again, as I told you, my brother Jeff has contributed massively to the mm. songs, the albums over the years, because once he saw what I was doing, he started to write true stories too. He was a yes. nurse in an intensive care, and he was down in Nowra when he discovered a lot of people in the last few days of their lives, they do begin to share their life stories. Yes. And often with the nurses around them. If the nurses really care and listen, they can hear the most beautiful stories. Now, often these days, nurses are so, you know, under-resourced and they're so, yeah. so much being asked of them, it probably couldn't happen in quite the same way as it was for Jeff then. Yeah. But this guy told Jeff this beautiful story about his wife who he had lost. He was reminiscing it, reminiscing with him. Jeff took the story and wrote it into a song and knowing what I was starting to do, we included it on my first reporter album. So it is a true story, absolutely the way it is in the song, gathered Beautiful. intensive care ward yeah. at Base Hospital. That's that one. The other one, well, I was up playing with a great mate of mine that I met uh, in, uh, in uh, Galston Rotary and who'd, taken on a, uh, a started a, a restaurant motel up there in, uh, in, uh, in, I suppose, the Hunter Valley. And I did the show one night and I came out and uh, my uh, truck had been broken into. I had lost a bunch of things. Yeah. And then not long after that, I did a show in Hornsby where I was trying to get everyone to sing along. I started, as I normally do, picking on and provoking uh, a group of people I thought weren't singing along getting along enough, you know, <laughs> a group of bikies. Uh. Also the night, I told them, the whole crowd, yeah. about these beautiful guitars that have been built for me by Brian DeGrucci, who passed away last year, sadly. Yeah. And um, 
again, I finished the show, and just before I left, one of the boys came up and said, nice guitars, mate, and walked out the door. I had no idea what, he, what was going to happen. I went back to my father's house at Croydon and not thinking or worrying about it in those days, I parked my car out the front and went to bed. When I woke up, I found my car had been broken into and the two Gucci guitars had been stolen. Through an amazing set of coincidence many years later, not when I wrote the trolley song, one of those guitars came home to me. Yeah. And the other one, I know where it is, but there are reasons why. I won't endanger the person who gave me the information yeah. going and getting it or having the police come get it. But when I found that I'd lost all that other gear and I'd lost my guitars as well, I came home to Carol and I said, do you realise that I haven't got anything left? The PA is different. Mm. Now everything's gone. I don't have anything left that I first started my career out with at the beginning. And she turned around and he said, well, you got me. And maybe if I thought about it differently at that moment, I might have answered differently. Uh, if I'd have thought about it properly, I would have said, oh, darling, you're absolutely right. That's the most special thing that have ever come to me in my life is you. But you did I did. I said, oh, I said, oh you're right. Uh, and I also got my trolley. Yes, I bought a trolley, Australian-made, and I've still got it, stainless steel trolley that I bought with my first week's wages to move all the gear at Journey's End. So I said, I've still got my trolley. And when I got up off the kitchen floor, um, I <laughs> realised I had a choice of either writing a song about my trolley or a song about Carol. Yes. The trolley song actually... <laughs> A song about Carol. <laughs> Sometimes Australian blokes can be very romantic, but it takes them a little while to get around to saying what they actually mean. So when people hear that song, they'll realise that the last verse is actually about Carol and I, and the at the time forty years of marriage, but now forty-eight, almost fifty years of marriage. Well, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Yes. One of your ex-radies, who's a quite a larger gentleman. Yes. You admit to me that one night after a couple of drinky poos. Yes. There was only one person we were scared of. Who was that? Carol. Absolutely. <laughs> Carol organised all their wages or and how much, because you couldn't pay a 16-man group, but they rotate through being one of the head roadies of all, <laughs> who had to stay sober, or <laughs> and one of the assistant roadies who drank all the drinks. Mm. So, yeah, and, and of course, and then there were a couple that went on to become full-time travelling with me, rugby, Paul yes. Paul, yeah. Al Shepard and uh, Ron and all, all those people. And so Carol was the one that actually I said in our last interview, everybody thinks of me as the person that ran Shoestring Productions that went on to record all the other artists and 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 they thought of me as being the, the, the bloke that was running the, the business. Hmm. I wasn't. I just no. went all the creative stuff. Carol ran everything. And very quickly, right down to that story I told you about how many tequilas I was allowed to drink of a night, she lined the road crew up and gave them the rules and told them what to do. And then they look at me and, and, and they knew when I was going that 
if they knew what was good for them, <laughs> they and not only if they knew what was good for them, if they knew what was going to make this work and survive the way it has in the music industry for 44 years, that we had to follow her lead because she was the one that really knew how to organise things. That's true. Now, we're going to, the last part of the interview is about now. We've, we've been, what, months and months and months in the pandemic. It's not as though any musician can go and get JobKeeper and a lot of that because you don't have a business. You, you sell, you sing and get paid. How would a Pat Drummond be, who has just bought a guitar and got a call from a mate to say, you got to listen to this guy in the current situation and we will come out of it, but it won't be the same. How do you see the music industry, especially the live music industry evolving and new artists being able to come through where if you can't feel what the crowd is saying and you can't feel if they like a song or not and react to them, what is, what's it going to look like, Pat? How, how do these young guys get a go? I mean, You've been privileged and you've been very lucky, and I mean that in a good way, through hard work. But where do they go? What do they do? Well, I've got to be honest with you. It's going to be a completely different model. Yeah. Uh, some of it's going to be very bad, but knowing the way I was then and the things I did at that age, I'm sure they're going to do the same sort of thing, but in a different way. What do I mean? Well, remember that I was never signed to a major record company. No. And as I, I told you, I became one of the first persons that, that, that Sony ever allowed to use, well, I say Sony, they weren't Sony then, they were CBS back then. Yeah. They were allowed to use their printing presses to produce independent albums. Yes. That was a groundbreaking shift in the way someone could become a national uh, uh, entertainer mm. by running his own business and then allowing other artists to join with him to do that. The independent model was just setting up. Why? Well, the major corporations had decided that they were going to control what kind of music would be recorded, what kind of music would be on the radio. And, and so young artists had to find a different way of existing. They did. And they did. Well, guess what? It's happening again. All the little pubs that used to run independent music, many of them are not going to come out of this shutdown. Even now, when they've reopened, they can only put 10 people in a room that might hold 50 or 100 people because of the social distancing need. Yes. You've got to guard people's lives. But many of the young, uh, many of the young artists have now had to work for little or no money for those hotels if they are still working. And in many cases, those pubs are being bought up by the major corporations. That's true. Uh, that are still controlled by Woolworths or other major things. And so in many ways, they won't be there. But during the shutdown, like everybody else, a lot of artists who were tech savvy started to run online events and they have started getting paid by the people who are coming to their online events to play. Yeah. It's creating a different model. They may be able to start 
through developing a following through these where they can announce that they will be, after the shutdown is all over, just hiring a hall somewhere or hmm. someplace and bringing a new crowd that the major corporations don't control. So a lot of those pubs that used to run entertainment, like the Great Northern yes, in, 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 on the North Shore, and now, the, once, once Woolworths took them over, and Woolworths doesn't officially own them anymore. They no, they don't. So they, they sold them to themselves, company yeah. Where they own most of the shares. Mm. Um, but what they did is they cleaned out the entertainment rooms and filled them up with poker machines. Yes. So I don't know what the future will be, but I have the greatest faith in a lot of the amazing young people that I'm seeing coming through, like Trevor Tolton and all those kind of young next generation people, and my own uh, kids yes. who, who works full time in the industry and, and Pete. I do believe that they will figure out a way that actually uses all the new technology and all the new uh, resources that are available to them that will find a way to create a new industry that they will be able to support. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy and I'm not going to say it's be quick. And I'm also not going to say I wasn't very, very fortunate to live in the times that I did. I think that they'll go on to create a whole new model out of this. So I'm confident about that. As for myself, well, I remember I told you my career began with these incredibly dramatic events. Yes. I actually had been winding down and stepping back. Yeah. And in a funny sort of way, it's been this big pandemic and things like that that has brought my gigs to a close. And um, I'm not sure. I'll go and do... I'm never going to announce that I'm ever officially retired <laughs> doing that. But I can't see the real possibility with a lot of my residencies now gone because of being taken over by big other places during the, 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 the COVID crisis. And a lot of my other places you know, struggling even just to stay afloat. I don't see myself returning to live performance in any regular way for a, 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 several years. And as for going back to Tamworth, no, I, I don't know that that's going to happen either. But look, who knows what the next stage may be? It might be still there. I, my eyes are always open. But like I say, most of my work these days is at my at my local church. And, and what I do is, is about my local community. Well, we might do the full circle, Pat, and someone actually said to me he's in the industry, they're actually thinking that we may go back to the old folk club days where the venues hired, as you started out with your brothers, and they were just there for the local artists and people paid at the door to come and see them because that's the only way they could get work because if they didn't have a recording contract, that was it. Yeah. And we might see that come back. I mean, there's a couple of old pubs in Sydney that do that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Lovely old pubs that have tried to re-establish have, have been fined now massive amounts of money for violating the, the, yes. the shutdown rules. So I think before we can even hope for that, we've got to get through this crisis and that might take one to two years yet. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, mate. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure again. Uh, you and I go way, go way back, but I'm just one of many of the people that uh, have been around you for a long time. You are still inspiring. Oh. I do believe that we will see you back in some of your regular uh, haunts. Maybe not as much as you used to, and maybe not all of them. <clears throat> but knowing you and knowing Carol, not wanting you around the house as much, 
I'm sure she'll probably find somewhere to book you just to get you out for a little while. Yes. I know your faith is still very, very important to you and you're doing a lot of fantastic work on that side with your church. So I've just got to say too that at my age, most uh, artists do completely stop uh, uh, working when they're hitting 70. Um, but um, the great thing, if I do do shows and I completely forget the words as starts to happen as you get older, at least in my case, the crowd knew the words better than me. They just simply take over and do the performance. I'll look forward to them singing my songs to me. In well, those as days. I've said, with the Rolling Stones and Betty White still alive, <laughs> coronavirus is nowhere near as bad as they're making it out to be. Yes, particularly with Keith Richards still with us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he is around, mate. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we may get back to each, each other again about 12 months when we start to come out of this and have a chat with maybe a couple of other artists and uh, we might talk about, you know, what they think of how it's going to come out and get a bit of a few different ideas and uh, all that. So, again, thank you so much. We will be soon and I look forward to seeing you at a venue eventually. Eventually, mate. You take Thanks. care. It's been great to chat. Ciao, mate. Thanks again for listening to today's podcast. Don't forget, these podcasts are brought to you by Resilient Sales Coaching. You can find us on the web at www.robelliot.com.au. I hope you have an absolutely awesome day.